And it does come in a, in a context uh, of the book of First Peter. It's really dangerous. This is what often happens with controversial topics or passages in Scripture, is people take a particular piece of Scripture, maybe even a verse, maybe even a word, and they rip it out of its context, and then they try and get meaning out of it. But um, none of us love for our conversations to be ripped out of context. How many times have you overheard someone say something and you're like, you know, I often say that if someone's listening in on a conversation, I say, you know, if you're going to eavesdrop, you've really got to pay attention to the whole conversation here. You can't just hear the end of it because it, it could get dangerously taken out of context. Um, so I want you to remember that this is always in a context, and, and I honestly need help and clarification from God's Holy Spirit, so I will pray as well. If you'll just bow with me. Jesus, we thank you again for your word. We believe that it, it is your word. And we want you to speak to us today. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would give us warm and open hearts. That you would help us to know and understand what we are hearing. And that you would help us not to be argumentative, but to listen to your word first. Jesus, help us to receive this well. Help us to hear it well. And help us to obey it well, Jesus. For the most part, this is where we lack so much. And we need your spirit to help us courageously obey what we believe is in your word. So help us to do that today, Jesus. In your awesome and holy name. Amen. As I said, I'm, I'm Trev. I'm the pastor here. Um, and, and just so you know, Elroy is not... As, as, as fairly new to our church, I, I didn't feel it was fair for Elroy's first message uh, to, to be delivered a, a two-by-four kind of message about the men. So uh, we, we gave him a break, but he chose to preach from uh, Deuteronomy. Looking forward to that. Don't miss that, please. But I want to kind of explain to you uh, where we are in our series. For those of you who are new, uh, we're in a series on the book of First Peter. Uh, we're calling it Tested. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you could call this series. We're calling it Tested because what happens basically is, is Peter writes a letter as a tested ma- man to a number of tested people in basically ancient Asia. And he likely doesn't know these believers. He likely has never met them. And yet he, he wants to send a letter of encouragement to tell them to hold on to their faith. And actually, he, he writes this letter explaining to them that if you are a Christian, here's one thing that you can expect. You can expect that God in his loving, kind, generous heart will test your heart to, to help you to see what's actually in your heart. He doesn't do that because he doesn't know what's in your heart. He, he doesn't test our hearts because it's like, oh, man, I had no idea these people were like this. He knows exactly what's in our hearts, but he tests us. He puts us through trials. And Peter says in chapter 1 that sometimes these trials really grieve us. And many times we view our trials as God trying to defeat our faith. But actually, that's not what God's doing. He's testing our faith so that our faith can be strengthened because the Bible actually says without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God without faith. So doesn't it make sense that God wants your faith as strong as it possibly can so that he can help you to please him as much as, he possi- as, much as you possibly can? It makes sense. 
And yet so often we have this great revolt against testing. I can't tell you how many times when someone faces some sort of a trial, their first response has been, why does God hate me so much? Why does God not care about my situation? Why would a loving God put me through this? I'm sure that was the question that many of those believers had for Peter. And this is why Peter says, good word, good question. Let me write you a letter that answers a lot of these things. And so what has been happening throughout the this series, I think we're about halfway through right now, is that Peter has been explaining, first of all, what they have in Jesus, the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ and what they have in him, how Jesus Christ provides absolutely everything that they need. And then Peter begins to talk about these uh, specific situations of testing. Last week, Pete delivered us a very good word about submission to authority. Because one of those tests of our faith is, will we submit to the authorities of our government, our civil authorities, that, as Peter said, God has actually put in place? You know, so as as Pete said so well, it's not as if, you know, Stephen Harper somehow got in around God's ultimate plan. No, that is God's plan. We're actually called to submit to that government not as our highest authority, but, but below the authority of God. And that must also be stated is that we can't talk about this issue of submission to anything unless we first understand our submission to God, the Father Almighty. In the Old Testament, he was known as Yahweh. And then this is what, what happened is Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be on par with Yahweh, which is, again, where many religions would would differ. Jesus is a good guy, but he's not God. Actually, the scripture says he is God. And we always need to make a decision upon whether he is God. And he is our ultimate authority. But after this authority, then there are authorities that God puts in place, that Jesus puts in place. There are structures in our society that Jesus puts in place that we simply have to submit to. And so that's why it begins in verse 1 with, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. It actually does mean submit to. Right away, you can understand very clearly where the controversy comes in, can't you? This is not an easy discussion to have. I do hope that there's no one kind of eavesdropping and just hears that one sentence because it has the tendency to be extremely controversial. But this opens up this door, and this is why I wanted to take the time. Sometimes you could kind of plug in this passage into just this whole idea of submission, but I think it's such a cloudy issue for us that we need to take the time to, uh, to look at it. In fact, it's so cloudy that I decided to take one week for the six verses on women and one week for the one verse on men. And guys, that's coming. So get ready for it, because it's important uh, to understand both sides of this story. It's very difficult to talk about wives submitting to husbands unless we talk about what we expect of our men as well and our husbands. In fact, I would say it's impossible. I'm going to have to apply this to men today because it's just impossible to look at this situation without looking at both sides of the issue. But Urban Grace's stance on men and women has been described as a belief called complementarianism. 
I know, huge words. Some of you are like still waking up, which is weird because you had an extra hour this morning. You should actually technically be more awake than you usually are. Actually, technically, some of you were eating by now, last week. So you're fine. But this idea of complementarianism is it, simply, uh, it, it's not, it's, it's a big word that's tried to describe what actually the Bible says about men and women in gender roles. And this idea is that men and women, husbands and wives, are equal and yet different, but complementary. So there's a difference between the two. I mean, I've got girls in my family, and we always have this joke. Like, do I have to really say the obvious, that there's actually differences between the two? Actually, in our culture, you do. Because there's pressure to just say that there's no difference between men and women. I'm like, oh, that would, that's a tough one to argue for me. I raise girls, they're different from the way I was raised, that's for sure. And I, I don't even want to get into that. But that's this idea. Complementarianism is this idea that we have different roles. We have equal standing before God, but these roles are not combative. They're actually complementary toward one another. Okay, does that make sense? So when we use that word again, uh, that's what we mean by that. Some would say right away that... that by having different roles or by setting out different roles, we actually change some rules on equality, which is, which is weird because I, I always use this example. If, if, I, if I got stopped by a police officer, and I have, by the way, um, unjustly, I think, I've been stopped, okay? And he said to me, um, uh, do you know how fast you were going? I'm going to have to give you a ticket. And I said, well, hey, we're equal. We're equal standing in this country. He would look at me and go, I know we are. And here's your ticket. Because there is no difference there between the equalness, the value of me or him or her. And at, most of the times it's been her, by the way. I don't know what ladies have against me as police officers. But anyways, there is not a difference in value in personhood, but there is a difference in authority. There is. One person has been given authority, and one person has been given the option to submit to that authority or go to jail. Okay, so see how this idea of authority sometimes gets so confused with equality, and it shouldn't, because throughout all of our culture, there are all kinds of things where we have different sets of authority, but we have same equal value as people. Okay, I just want to say some of these, uh, this preamble because I think it's helpful. Um, so let's get into the text. Let's let the text do a lot of the talking here. Excuse me. So let's start with the, the, the first two verses, and I've titled the first two verses, it's pretty simple, uh, Winning a Husband. Winning a Husband. It's a little orange there. It should have been bolder. Sorry, my fault. Um, you see right there in the text, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. It, you have to find out what the likewise is there for, but if you look at the likewise, what Peter is talking about there is 2 verse 8. Um, sorry, 18. 2 verse 18. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Okay, so that's what Peter is tying back in. 
Again, some of you are, I, I can just hear all the questions coming. Uh, are you saying that, you know, my husband's my master? Well, here's what's interesting, is that I looked at the, what the word husband means. Did you know that the word husband actually is defined as master of the household? Did you know that? That's the actual definition of the word husband. And we use it all the time, not in a derogatory way, but a very normal way. And so actually, when Peter uses this, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, he's not using it in a derogatory way. He's not saying that, that he believes that one is better than the other. He's simply saying there are, there are places of authority that God has put into place. And so here are some assumptions I think are really important for us. Again, I'm not sure if they made it into the, the keynote or not, did they? They didn't make it in, so I will do you justice by saying them out loud. First of all, the first thing that Peter assumes in the text is Peter assumes that God has the highest authority. I've already gone over this a little bit, but Peter himself in Acts chapter 4 verse 19 and 20 says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So Peter preaching, open air preaching, Don't you wish that was still back in Canada? Open-air preaching in Jerusalem, and some of the Jewish leaders come in and say, hey, can you keep it down? He says, hey, you're actually not the highest authority for us, so whether this is right or wrong is kind of for you to judge, but we actually answered to God, you know? In, in some ways, it's, it's interesting that it's Peter that says that, and then he says, submit yourselves to the governing authorities. Uh, but that's for another day. So this is Peter speaking long before uh, he would have ever instructed the believers that he understands God has the highest authority. Uh, let me, let me uh, kind of simplify this for us even further. At some point, every single one of us will have to submit to someone. There's just no place in society that won't submit. Do you know what happens when you find someone who just will not to submit to anyone? The U.S. Army chases them down and tries to kill them. That's generally what happens to someone who will not to submit to authority at any level. Okay? So this means that at some point, all of us will have to submit. The, the way that the gospel actually works is uh, we receive salvation when we submit to God as our highest authority. And we say, okay, you get to decide my worldview. Okay, you get to tell me how deep my sin is. Okay, you get to tell me how much I need a Savior. Okay, if you say Jesus is God, then He's God. And so this isn't out of line with the way the whole gospel works in this understanding of of submitting to authority that God has the highest authority. So let's just state that God has the highest authority. The God of the Bible, Yahweh, God the Father, has the highest authority. Even in the books like Philippians, it says that Christ humbled himself and submitted himself to God's authority. The last thing we hear Jesus pray about in the garden is, not my will, but your will. He was on the same page as the Father, and yet he willingly submitted, even though it was a great struggle for him. Because he was made human. And so Peter assumes that God has highest authority. You can't understand anything else we say, really, until you understand that we believe that God has the highest authority. 
Because some will ultimately say, well, what, what happens when someone says this, or this authority says this, or this authority does this, or this authority does this? Say, ultimately, God has the highest authority. So whatever he says about it is, is the way it goes. Second thing Peter assumes is that husbands are considered the heads of the home. I do not believe this is actually up for debate. This is very clear in Scripture. This is clear from the beginning of Scripture. This is clear all the way through Scripture. This is clear from Scripture. Those are the same thing, by the way. Ephesians 5.23 says that, that, that Christ is the head of the church. Husband is the head of the home. So see how there's a lot of discussion about family here. How a family, a church family runs is how the small family runs and vice versa. How the small family runs is how the large church family runs. That's why when we have governance in our church, we govern it very similarly to how we would govern within the families or have that expectation. And Peter assumes that husbands are considered the heads of the home. Colossians 3.18 says this. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this. When Paul instructs his Corinthian friends, he says this. Tell me if this is not clear. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Is that clear? I think so. I don't think we can debate about these sorts of things. Some, would, some commentators want to argue this and say, well, head actually means source. That Don't believe those things. Honestly. They're weak arguments at best. This is not a debate. The question is not, are you the head of your home, man? The question is, are you a good head of your home? I want you to think like this. Men, do not think, well, I guess I should kind of be like a head. No, you are already the head. The question, are you tripping over your own feet? Or are you being a man and leading like you're the head of the home? That's the question. Jesus is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the home. Now, the, the, the cultural context is there was likely a number of wives that came to faith. And because this was such a normative in ancient culture, it wasn't just Christians that actually believed this. It was basically all of culture that believed this. And for the most part, there hasn't been any cultural pushback for a long, long time. Only in the last maybe hundred years has there started to be kind of a pushback that, that this is actually a debate. So when Peter instructs, like he's not instructing something that wouldn't have actually been very normative within culture. And what was likely happening was there were wives that had discovered that God was their ultimate authority. And so they basically said, okay, this means that Jesus has thrown out every human institution that's been made because of my authority in Christ and my freedom in Christ. How many times have you, if you're a Christian, you've heard that word, someone's sinning, and what do they describe it as? Freedom in Christ. Right? Someone got drunk. What's that? It's freedom in Christ, man. I've heard it over and over again, right? Someone needs to be called to repentance. They're not living. They don't want to shape up. What do they respond with? Hey, it's freedom in Christ. So Peter says, hey, ladies, don't let your freedom in Christ remove this human institution of husbands being the head of the home. Don't think for a second that Jesus just sweeps this under the carpet and says this doesn't matter anymore. 
Thirdly, Peter assumes this advice is for all Christians. Some would point at this text and go, oh yeah, well, Peter's talking to wives who have husbands who are not Christians. And I would say, this is actually, ironically, the only point in the issue where it really begins to be a problem is, is submission isn't very difficult when you willingly have, have kind of a direction you're willing to go, right? So if you have a political leader that you buy everything into what they're selling, do you have a difficult time voting for them or submitting to their leadership? No. It's when that political leader does something that you don't like that you have difficulty. And so I don't think that, that this kind of advice is any different for any Christian anywhere. In fact, one of the commentators actually said, uh, uh, there's kind of this, the way the Greek is written in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. So it's commonplace that there were believing husbands. In that culture, basically, your family believed what the husband believed. They took those gods. That's kind of the way it was. And Peter just kind of, you know, this is what's so countercultural about the text. He says, you can believe in Jesus even if your husband doesn't. In that culture, that was very taboo. So I think this is for all of us. So there's, there's not really someone here who says, well, my, my situation's a little bit different. And you know what? I think we have a whole lot of this going on in our culture and our churches. I think too many times we hear some things and uh, we're like, yeah, 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 totally past that. It's totally right. Now, in my situation that God clearly didn't write the correct scripture on, it's different. And so I don't have to obey this. That happens to me all the time, by the way. It's kind of like, yeah, I totally, I totally buy in. My situation is a little different, though, hey, you know, so sucks to be God, you know, tough one, God. Uh. I duped you. This is one of these situations that I don't want you just to try and find a loophole for. I want you to listen carefully to it. Fourthly, Peter assumes that submission to a husband's leadership is not about worth and value. Again, I tried to establish this at the beginning. Uh, Places like Ephesians 3 actually said that when it comes to stature before God, there is neither male or female. Some would use that text... Uh, or no, that's Galatians 3, sorry. Some would use that text to say, well, there's no rules at all. That's not what the text says in any way, shape, or form. If you look at Galatians 3 in its context, what it does clearly say is, when it comes to the ability to receive the gospel, to be one of God's children, there is no level jumping. Male does not make you closer to God and mean you have to jump less. And female does not mean you have to jump more. There's neither slave nor master. There is neither male nor female. There is neither like uncivilized or hipster. My translation. There is nothing in society that can make you closer to God or less far away from God because of who you are, your ethnicity, your cultural background, your spiritual gifts, your stature in society. That's clear. And so Peter's not really actually making an argument about this, but because we don't understand this very well, I feel like we have to get through some of these. So the big question on everyone's mind, thank you for asking, is what does it mean to submit? Who wants to ask that question? Anyone bold enough to say, what does it mean to submit? No one. Okay. I will ask it for you and I will answer it for you. 
what the idea of submission in the text does not mean is inferior standing. What it does mean is to follow the leadership of. If I could simplify it for you, this is what submit to your husband's means. It means to follow his responsible leadership. Already you have a number of questions. I hope you write them down, and I actually hope you talk to me after. Don't debate. Just talk to me after. Just ask questions kindly, and I'll likely give you some hopefully good answers. But it ultimately means to submit to your husband's leadership and his responsibility for your relationship as a couple and your family. Bible's pretty clear on this again. At Urban Grace, we want to make this crystal clear. We don't believe that you'll lose your salvation if you don't believe this. There's actually lots of other churches in this city that I would highly recommend if you disagree with that. But here's where we stand as Urban Grace. We believe this to be true. The husband is the head of the house, that his wife is to submit and follow his leadership. Now, again, it's quiet in the room. This is a tough word for us. I immediately have to say some things, and I actually have to direct them at guys. Because this is something that's, that's close on my heart, and always, I'm always humbled when I have to speak on this, because actually, if there's anything that this calls to attention, it calls to my lack of attention to my responsibility in this area. That's really all it does. But I would say this to men, it is, it is the, the difficulty in understanding what submission looks like, really, most often, I will say, maybe even the words 95%. 87% of the statistics I use are made up on the spot. But 95% of the time, the real struggle with wives submitting to their husbands is because their husband is a doofus. There are so few times that I hear an email or response. In fact, I don't remember one where it says, if my husband would quit taking care of me and taking responsibility for me and my family and providing for me, I'd be a lot happier. Guess what I hear? I'd love to submit to my husband, but I'm having trouble understanding it because I can't get him off the computer. I would love to submit to my husband. And his leadership. But it seems like I have to get the kids ready for church. I have to get the kids out the door doing stuff for school. I have to teach them the gospel. And my husband just sits there. And I would say, yes, ladies, guess what? Guess why we believed we were called to plant a church in Calgary? Because we just didn't see enough men doing this well. So we could, how in the world can we call anyone to obey 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6 without almost first. And I was tempted to reverse it. Looking at 1 Peter 3, 7, which is likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, honoring her like the weaker vessel. Again, not in a demeaning way, saying, take care of her before you even take care of yourself. I tell you, I really believe if we have a culture where men are like this, I don't think we're going to get a lot of arguments from our ladies. Can I get an amen from a lady? 
I don't think I'm wrong on that. I've heard that countless times. One of the very things that we struggle is how do we model this in our church? How does it look on the stage? How do we figure this out? We've got to get more ladies up on the stage to, to, to do things like read scripture to show we value this. And guess what we have? I, we, we hear the response all the time. I love it when our guys lead and take responsibility for this. It doesn't happen enough. And so pardon me if I'm very passionate about it. But I cannot talk about submission without talking about leadership for men. I cannot do it. It doesn't make sense to me. And so everything you hear, ladies, will be, if you want to proclaim the gospel, if you want to move forward with the gospel, here's what you can do. Here's the part you can play in this, if you want to. Because too many men will go, hey, uh, what I, what I read is, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. What I hear is, I get to tell my wife when to get me my beer from the fridge. It's not what the text says. Your husband cannot tell you to submit to him. It doesn't work that way. That is a methodology that doesn't work. Telling someone, you need to submit to me. It has to be something that comes from a wife who passionately fears the Lord God Almighty and says, I will set aside my rights. I will set aside what's best for me so that I can proclaim God through my activity and my actions toward my husband. That's the only way this will work. It has to be something that comes deep from within, and that's exactly what Peter says, so that if they don't believe the word, you can actually win them over. Uh, again, statistically, I don't know how this works. How, how many, let, let's percentage-wise, how many men do you think have been won over to Christianity through nagging? Any idea, percentage-wise? Zero. zero. I, I, would, I would put zero up there. Maybe 0.0. It's not a very good, it's not very effective. You know, I notice it's, it's not an effective way to get someone to do something. It's to nag, nag, nag. And this is all Peter is saying. He's like, hey, rather than pour your energy into trying to prove your freedom in Christ to your not-believing husband who doesn't get the gospel and doesn't even think it's important, how about you try to win him not through putting on lots of makeup, but how about you do it through your gentleness and patience? Try it. It's, it might not work, but it's going to work better than nagging. It's going to work better than rebelling. It's going to work better than trying to split hairs over things. And this is how I would simplify what Peter is trying to say. Don't try to win the argument. Try to win the man. That's why I put how to win a husband. Don't try to win the argument. Try to win the man. Because sometimes, and we know this, this works for everyone, you can win the argument and lose the person, right? How many friends have you had? You've won the argument. Clearly, you are in the right. And you've lost a friend. I think Peter's attitude towards this is simply like, what do you think we would value more? A better public speaker? A better debater? Or a man who loves Jesus? 
What do you think? My encouragement is, I'm for the latter. It has to be something that comes within you, ladies, though. This cannot be something that we enforce. All we can do as men is encourage this kind of a culture. And I'm dead serious about this. That's really what it will take. I believe it will take a culture of men who make this understandable. I really do. From day one, I said, we are looking for dudes who need to straighten out their lives, learn how to find a woman, get a job, keep their pants on, lead their wives, teach the gospel to their kids. And guess what? We still can't outnumber men to women in our church. I don't get it. We say it outright. We're chasing dudes down to lead this way, and we still can't stop ladies from showing up and going, where are the men? Some notes on this. What if, (laughs) how can you submit? Well, I've watched this work itself out in a number of ways. Um, Submitting is not doing as long as whatever he wants, as, as long as it's not what you want. Let me rephrase that. That sounded way clearer in my notes. Submission doesn't really come into play when he's doing everything you want him to do. That's easy. My friend Pete was very kind to me last week when he said it was easy to submit to Trev's leadership. And we talked about it this morning and I said to Pete, yeah, the question on whether you will submit to my leadership as your pastor doesn't really come in when you agree with the direction that I'm going. Guess where it comes in? When you don't agree and you struggle with it. This is where you'll find, believe it or not, this, ladies, is where you will actually be tested. The real test isn't whether you'll listen to this or not. The real test is when your husband's not really leading very well, what will you do? How will this go? And I would say this. Don't do it with your face and your mouth, but not with your heart. Don't do that. The Bible would call it hypocrisy. What submission does not mean is you don't have a voice. What it does not mean is you don't have an opinion. What it does not mean is you shouldn't tell your husband what direction the family should go. What it does mean is, will you follow his leadership when you don't totally buy in for the sake of the gospel? Remember that. For the sake of the gospel. I was talking to someone in the lobby before the service, and I said, to be honest, none of this will really make sense unless we have that as our highest aim for the proclamation of the gospel, for the forward progress of the gospel. It's extremely difficult to understand any of this without that. And even so, ladies, you have my deepest sympathy and empathy for the pain you may suffer while your husband refuses to lead. I've watched it countless times. I can't even talk about it without tears coming to my eyes. Most of the places I've pastored, I've seen this in action. And I've seen the pain on ladies' faces 
when I preach about these things, or when I talk about these things, I watch tears come to their eyes with the way I treat my own daughters. Because what I see is, this is painful. This is real testing. This will drive all... This will drive you to your knees like few other things in your life will, ladies. If you want to know what kind of faith you have, you will know in those moments. Because it will be the hardest place to believe that Jesus Christ knows what he's doing. Guys, are you listening to this? What are you thinking about right now that you can make a difference in this? You can reverse the trend. You can play your part. Married, single, doesn't matter here. We're all part of building this culture. I read a book this summer by a climber named Jim Whitaker, some of you may know, and in his biography talked about his wife becoming a Christian, and she became a Christian actually in a very uh, charismatic kind of movement. But in that, there was a lot of, it was kind of Jesus people movement, which actually produced a lot of good things, but some of the difficult things were there were very open homes. And so she became a believer, and he did not. And they got into arguments over and over again. And she said, we should have people into our home. And he says, I can't handle this. I'm not on board with this. And she says, I don't care. And they got divorced. You know, the book ends with Jim Winokur never once saying another word about her. I tried to Google her. She's not even on Google. She's not even Wikipedia. Nowhere to be found. Part of me wonders, was it worth it? I know it sounds even anti-Christian to say that, but was it worth it to lose your husband and have a few people in your home? Sometimes you've got to know and submit to his leadership just for that case because God actually cares about your husband receiving the word. What if your husband's an abusive husband? Big question on everyone's mind. I get that. Here's my advice. Get out. Get out of the relationship, get help. Go to police, go to authorities. See how this works everywhere, right? He has abused his authority, he has neglected his authority, he has misused his authority in a way that he needs to come under now the authority of some larger authority. Get out. Does it mean divorce? Let's not even go there today. Maybe. Again, we're looking for restoration and help, but you cannot help as an abused woman in a relationship. You can't. That's where you need a church family, you need government, you need police, you need authorities that Jesus puts in place. This is why he puts them in place, is to help people like that. So submitting to your husband's leadership is difficult when he's not leading. But if he's abusing you, you can't follow his leadership. So this is a timeout. Get out of the relationship and we'll see. Maybe he'll come back to faith. Usually he doesn't. But he certainly can't by you just sitting there confusing him on what authority looks like. 
and wish our government would get tougher on domestic violence and some of this would be a whole lot easier. Don't quote me on that, anyone who's a reporter here today. So what does Peter say? He says, here's where true beauty lies. Don't try to win your husband by putting on lots of makeup and tight skinny jeans. You may attract his eyes, but ultimately you will not win his heart this way. Again, do not hear this, ladies, as you can't wear makeup, that you should be frumpy, don't shower. No, that's not what the text says. Please, shower. <laughs> Take care of the way you look. But Peter says to, to them, don't think that this is how you're going to do it. You're going to end around this. You're going to short-circuit this by dolling yourself up. And let me say, this is a challenge to our ladies here because we're in a young church. Don't attract your guy on the base of, basis of your hip-tight clothes. Don't let that be, especially publicly. No, publicly. Privately, do whatever you want. Wear whatever you want or don't wear whatever you want. Seriously. But publicly, Peter says, don't let your, your, your low v-necks and your tight jeans be what people know you for. May it be this quiet gentleness. I hesitate to use the word quiet. Because I don't think anyone in my family is actually quiet. But they are submissive. It's one of the things that attracted me to my wife. So when we met, she desperately wanted me to lead and she desperately wanted to submit to a good leader. And it drew something out of me that I didn't even know was there. But she's patient. She's gentle. She doesn't always agree with the direction my family goes. Our family. But she has a great voice in our marriage. She has tremendous influence. My family wouldn't be where it is without her. My girls would not know the gospel like they do without her. And for however many times I have failed, she still submits to the direction of our family. And it's a good challenge. May, the, may what draws us to our wives be that they follow our leadership in spite of the fact that we're faulted. That they cheer us on when we do well and they console us when we don't. Peter Davids writes, in biblical perspective, this term gentleness, respectful and pure conduct, is, isn't, is, is a term that indicates a person who does not attack back or wait. She waits on God to judge in the end, knowing that God is just. That person can suffer evil without bitterness and vengeance. It's just this attitude of, I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to try and win an argument exclusively, even though I have an opinion and I'm very vocal about it. 
There's no problem with this. And men, if your wife has an argument, pay attention. She has better reasons than you do. So lastly, this is what Peter says, for this is how holy women of God who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, clothe themselves. So again, Peter's using this image of clothes. He's saying, like, don't use actual clothes. Clothe yourselves with this, this gentleness, this patience. And then he connects them to the Old Testament women. women. There were a lot of heroes of the faith, and one of them was Sarah, who was Abraham's husband. If you're not aware of the story, Abraham and Sarah are basically the, the two king, king and queen pins of the faith, of the Jewish faith. And God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, chapter 12, and he said, I will give you many descendants, but God in his promise and his sovereignty decided to stretch this promise out and to test their faith in this promise. And so there were a number of years between when God said, I will give you many descendants, and when he actually gave them a baby. And this tested Abraham's faith very greatly to the point he's 90, she's 90. And God says, "Okay, now's the time. You can almost hear Abraham swallow hard in the text and go, are you serious, God? This is the time. And actually, the text says, but for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That word in there is the word for master. And one of the guys went back and looked at that actual text and he said, the only time Sarah calls him her master, basically the head of the house, was when Abraham had told Sarah that they were going to have a baby. And she said, really? The head of the house is going to deliver this gift to me at this time in my life? And she struggled and yet submitted. And again, so Peter says, this is where the rubber meets the road. If you want to proclaim the gospel through your activity as a wife, here is the best way that you can do it. You can submit to your husband's leadership. Again, there are so many questions for this. I hope a lot of you talk to me and sort through this and wrestle through this. And so I'll end with just kind of some applications to both men and women. Women, what can you do? To help this situation? Very simply, again, to repeat, you can only do this if you care more about what Jesus thinks than what culture thinks. At the very beginning of 1 Peter, uh, Peter reminds these people that they're exiles. They don't live in this culture as people who will just fit in all the time. In fact, they won't fit in. They feel like an exile. That's what an exile feels like. There's just a part of them that's never really fully indoctrinated to that particular culture. And so if you care more about what the culture thinks than what Jesus thinks, you'll have an impossible time obeying this. Impossible. And my recommendation is don't even try. First of all, find out where you are with God as your authority. Secondly, this, this goes for those who are married. You can, you can be a helper in this. Our society and our culture has used the word helper to make it demeaning. But did you know that the Holy Spirit is called the helper in the New Testament? 
So God himself describes himself as a helper. This is not a demeaning thing. And I always reverse that and say, God in Genesis 1 makes Eve, the woman, a helper. Who do you think he's implying needs help? I think some of you got that. It's not a demeaning thing. It's a different role, complementary role. And so I would say this, ladies, you can help your husband succeed. And I would say, do help them. Don't stand idly by and hope that they lead. Give them opportunities. One of my favorite things about my wife, she gives me opportunities to succeed as a dad and as a husband. Sometimes I've heard her say, Trev, lead me in this, please. Grow a pair and lead me. It's helpful. (laughs) It's difficult, but it's helpful. Ladies, you can make this really difficult on your husband. You can nag him about his leadership. You can make him struggle through this. You can make him bumble his way through his leadership. Or you can just celebrate every time he does and say, Oh, honey, more of that, please. Honey, I'd love if you lead us in the gospel. Honey, here's the Bible. Here's the chapter markings. I even got a study Bible for you. I got the audio version. Lead us. Honey, this is what I'm learning about the gospel. What are you learning? What do you think that means for where our family is going? There's ways you can act as a wife and even as a woman who's not yet married that can build this culture in. You can gently know, let your husband know what you think is best in the situation. Not in a combative, argumentative way, but like, hey, hon, I, uh, yeah, about the direction of our family. I think we should do this. But ultimately, I'm going to leave that with you. You know what's best for me and the family. You care deeply about me and my health. Husbands, if you can't take that as a cue to, to lead, man, there'll be some guys that will show up at your house later that will help you understand this. I'm kidding about that. But, but come on. Like this, is, this is where this is just kind of getting senseless. Application to men. Here's my... Here's my encouragement for you men. Don't make this difficult for your wife to understand. Don't make this difficult for anyone to understand. Dudes, make it crystal clear. You will sacrifice your life for your wife and your family. And I can guarantee you that you won't have a lot of pushback on that. The clearer you make it, the easier this will be. Because what will ruin everything is if we believe this and people walk out of here and they complete, dudes completely ignore what has just been said. And they make it so difficult for us as a church family to obey and reflect God in this. That will wreck everything. And guys, single, married, we all have a part to play in this. 
Most, again, most of the kickback I've ever heard on this issue is because most of the time the women have no example to point to of how this actually looks. It's confusing. It's like, oh, yeah, I know the text says that, but good grief. What does that actually look like? Serve your wife, as Ephesians says, like Jesus served the church. What did Jesus do? He, in a position of greater authority than any husband ever has, does what? He gets down and does the most despicable thing that people could think of at the time. He washes his disciples' feet. (coughs) Excuse me. And here's what Peter says, who's like, I don't like that you're serving me. And Jesus says, hey, if you don't get this is how service and leadership goes, then you don't get me. And Peter's like, okay, fine, then you do it. This is what leadership looks like. You lay your life down for your wife. I say this in marriage counseling. If if you're coming to me for marriage counseling, you'll hear this in greater detail, but I'll be closer to you in my house. But you'll hear the same thing. Dudes, your goal is at the end of your life, your wife and the women around you go, that is the best example of how Jesus serves the church that I can think of. That's your goal. That's your goal. That's your vision. You are hoping that when you die and pass away, your wife says at your funeral, the best example I can think of the cross and what Jesus has done is my husband. That's your goal. It's a high standard and we're going to need the Spirit's help on this. And so let's, let's pray. I'll ask the band to come. I've got to pray. Because I get the sense this is a tough word for us. I know it's a tough word. It's a tough word for me. I'm going to come down here and repent like the rest of you. So let's pray together. Jesus, I'm glad you give us a tough word. It's a good word, even though it's tough. And so I pray for everyone here who's still, anyone here is still confused. who still has a tough time in their particular situation. So I pray, Jesus, you will continue to soften our hearts to your work in our life. That as ladies, we will be empowered that we can proclaim the gospel in this way and not feel as though we're being, they're being demeaned. And yet, as men, we can feel challenged that we have work to do. We have things we can do as well. And I pray, Jesus, that this would be a church family that is filled with warriors who care mostly about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ above all things and are willing to set aside their rights, their preferences for getting this clear. In your name I pray. Amen.